The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, I have to just correct one thing. Uh, Josh is too kind. Unlike Pastor Pete, I'm not a pastor. I'm no hero. And I say that so that if I say, if I mispronounce a word or something, you're not like, this guy's a pastor? So guys, he's the director. It's cool. They do that. And I would take my tie off, but I'm missing a button, just so you guys know. I'm not, as Jack Hauschult pointed out, he thought I was being pretentious. That's not what the case is. Well, I'm very excited. Um, when when, when uh, Pastor Pete uh, texted me and asked me if I would preach, um, he told me, you know, I could pick whatever. And I asked what, you know, I said, well, I'll just be part of your series, whatever you guys are doing. Thinking, you know, I'll enjoy the challenge of that. And then I get a whopper of a text today. And it's like, I, why couldn't this just be, I don't know, a section of the Beatitudes or something. But I'm excited. And as I was looking at it, there's really two major themes. One, who we are. We're adopted by, by God. We're part of this family. And then how do we respond to that? And uh, I was thinking about some, some friends of ours who had been married for a couple of years and weren't able to have kids. And I know a lot of couples that have this struggle. And any of you who know the adoption process, it really is an incredibly beautiful, fantastic thing. It's, um, well, I'll just tell you about my friends. They, like I said, they were married for a time, couldn't have kids. Then they did the foster thing. And it's very hard because to be a foster parent, you, you would get attached to these kids. You get to know them. And then you know, you really don't have control over whether or not they stay in your home. And that was taking its toll on them. So finally, they find this little girl. She's a, she was a baby at the time. And they decide, we're going to adopt her. And thank God that the process went really quickly. And just to watch them, they, they've been in our home. Um, we've been at their home. And just to watch them with this little girl, aside from the fact that she's a different ethnicity, even that, you really, it blurs eventually. You look at it, and you're like, wow, this is their kid. This is so their kid. She even has some of the mannerisms of the mom. It's an amazing thing. And, and when I think about the beauty and power of adoption, you know, so often we, we know the narrative of salvation. We talk about how, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross for us, and, and that's beautiful, and we're so familiar with it. But in reality, if you really break it down, God rescued us. He sacrificed for us. He's forgiven us. And if he didn't go any further than that, we would have much more than we deserve. But he didn't stop there. That's what this is about. Instead, he took us into his family. He gave us sonship and daughtership. And that's really the beautiful place we start with this passage. Father, I pray that you bless this. I thank you so much for the congregation here at Holy Cross. pray that you be with Pastor Pete. And uh, Janae is there um, having a little respite, Lord. Father, I pray that you would bless the the reading and the discussion of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so verse 1. And again, we're in 1 John 3, 1 through 10. It's it's in your bulletin. Um, It's also in your Bible, so however you want to do it, it's on the screen behind me. I mean, it's everywhere, this verse. There's no hiding from it, as we'll see. So so verse 1, and I break it down into two, two chunks. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. My favorite part of that is, and so we are. And if you take a second to try and wrap your head around this, it's, it's staggering. Uh, even the author here just marvels at the redemptive story of God. You know, for us rescued from sin and death, that's one thing. 
but to be adopted, to be brought into his family, to be given certain rights is so beyond anything that the human brain really can comprehend that it's like staring at the sun. If you really try and work that over, eventually you just have to retreat. You've got to back off from it. And so while we'll never fully understand or come to grips with that concept, what we are required to do is respond to it. Respond to that honor. You know, people ask when something good happens to them, you know, why me? Well, you can't be so caught up in the why me question that you don't ever move past that. And so this is what must shape our views, not only of God and who he is, but of us and who we are. Here's the thing that I've noticed, and maybe you have too. So often, we think of God as something that we can customize. He's our God, but in a lot of ways, well, I like this aspect of God, or I like that aspect of God, and we really kind of customize him to fit us. And we're taught this, believe it or not, through kind of our earliest interactions with Christians. I'll give you an example. We often hear the term, I've decided to make Jesus Christ my personal Lord and Savior. And you're like, that's so beautiful, that's wonderful, and then we rejoice. And it is beautiful and wonderful, and we should rejoice. But if you really isolate that and you think about it, I have decided to make Jesus Christ my personal Lord and Savior. And here's the thing. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, but it's part of our Christian vernacular, and we just say it and we don't think about it. But Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, whether you make him that or not. It's not as though, you know, I've considered it, I've taken applications, and after a lot of thinking, I've decided to appoint you Lord and Savior. Welcome aboard. That's basically what we're saying with this, and that's not what we mean, but it's very dangerous when we say that, because the reality is, Scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a foregone conclusion. The family's already set up. And when we put ourselves in the position of, well, I'm going to decide this or that, we forget that he's our creator. We forget that he's our father. And he's chosen to reclaim us after we cut and ran from him. He's on the throne. Children don't shape and mold the father in a family. At least they ought not to. Sometimes mine do, but that's not how it's supposed to look. I want to be a strong dad like Ross Newman back there. But I love the middle part here of verse 1. We are called children of God, and so we are. Boom. Not we are considered children of God, or we have the opportunity to be children of God. We are children of God, and so we are. And it's the law of, uh, of definition, you know. Hanley's a man. Jill's a woman. You are that. And a lot of times this frustrates me, but my, my second youngest, Catherine, is too. And she has a real strong grasp of the law of definition. I'll be like, if she's, in, you know, being adorable, I'll ask her, I'll be like, so how are you so cute? And she'll go, because I am. And if she's being a little, I'll ask her, I'll be like, why did you hit your brother Dave? Because I did. And I'm, you know, and I'm not going to break through that, but she's very, she's very clear in that. It's not even circular. It's just, this is what it is. And that's what we are. We are considered children of God, and so we are. There's no further explanation needed, only action to follow. But finishing up here with verse 1, we find instruction, an explanation as to why things are the way they are. Last part of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The grace and love found in the sonship of God, being part of his family, is completely outside of the frame of understanding of the world. 
mean, it's barely in ours, but especially the world. Because of our status of the king, I'm sorry, as children of the king, the world flat out doesn't recognize us. What we do, who we are, how we conduct ourselves, even being here today is weird to them. And this, this text says it should be weird to them. It's one of the main ways that we can identify ourselves as children of the king. It's how we can identify our spiritual siblings. We belong to God, and so we must look like God. Some families always joke about, you know, oh, that kid doesn't look like me. He looks like the mailman or something like that. And you're always hearing that. My son David is blonde and little and doesn't look anything like me. Because as you can see, I'm neither blonde nor little. And yet, Dave's starting to look more like me. But the bigger thing is, is he acts like me. He bears my image in some form. And we all bear our father's likeness, even if it's not physical. And I'm talking about our, our, our earthly fathers. There will be things about you that you've gotten from your dad. And this is obviously spiritually true as well. If you don't fit in this world, that's an okay thing. What's not is if you find yourself absolutely killing it in the world, and I don't mean just success. I mean, like, you are indecipherable from the world. Well, then you are clearly outside of God's family. I think that's one of the, the haunting, foreshadowing portions of this scripture is that we might have it wrong. But the thing is cool because this is still the grace aspect is because we have an opportunity to start to ask that question. I would much rather be warned and challenged and have to come to grips with a, a scripture like this than be told all along, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. It's like in Rocky Three when he finds out that his trainer has been setting him up with these cupcake fights, and what he thought he was, he wasn't really. We don't want that, guys. We don't want that. And it'll get, continue to build on that. So <clears throat> that sense of a, of a family identity is so important to us. One of my mentors, and actually was one of Pastor Pete's mentors, a guy named Tom Askew, would always say that the family identity is the most important thing um, and with his family, give this example. If one of his four boys wanted to do something, and he said no, and they said, well, so-and-so's doing it, he would say, but you're an askew, and askews don't do that. Or you're an askew, and askews do do that. And I thought about that, and I thought about that within my own home, and I thought about that within Christianity. But I'm a Christian. I'm part of God's family. I don't do that. And it doesn't have, we're, all, we're so afraid of coming off as uppity that we forget to draw lines. But if you were gluten-free... You just, oh, I can't eat that. Isn't it funny how we were just, if I'm gluten-free, then I'm going to just put up these barriers. But when it comes to sin, and when it comes to being part of God's family, we're like, well, maybe just a donut, you know? I, you know, of course no one's perfect. It's very funny to me. As you can see, I'm not gluten-free, but I know people who are. <laughs> so, moving on. To be hated by the world may be unpleasant. But ultimately, rejection from this system that is, is a good thing. It's a reminder of our identity within Christ's family. Think about when you feel that the world is just getting tougher and tougher for Christians. You know, we've got it pretty easy. But then you look at the rest of the world and think, oh my goodness, it's horrible out there for them. And even within our own structure, we start to think, man, it's not like it used to be. And in many ways, it's not. But let that serve as a reminder to loosen your grip on this shabby hostel that we currently live in for just a short time. If you're loving the world, you're not, you're not made for eternity at that point. But 
along with that higher calling of behavior comes a promise. In, chapter, in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be <clears throat> has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is more pure gold, guys. This is the what now <clears throat> and what's coming part of the promise. This is our hope, that good things are coming. We're safe. I was talking to a lady one time on a bus trip, and she was telling me about how she and her husband didn't have kids, and they lived in Alaska. They, he ran the school district, and she, they went over to Russia for some reason. And there in Russia, um, they were walking the streets. They had a little time from their conferences, and they saw this little mangy pack of little boys. And they noticed that they would go to this window. I, I don't know what building that was, but they'd give them bread and whatnot, some food, and then they would run off. But they noticed that these boys are ranging from about three to eight. And there was one little three-year-old, and the eight-year-olds are just grabbing the stuff off of him. They're watching him get bullied, shoved away. And she, I mean, we, we would be heartbroken if we saw the littlest puppy in a litter go through that. How much more so an image bearer of God. And so this lady and her husband, I mean, they acted fast. And because they had, I don't know, some kind of a tie there, they were able to, to move things along, and they adopted this little boy, Sasha. And he didn't speak language, basically. He, he, of course, didn't speak English. He knew very, very little Russian. But one thing that she memorized, <coughs> and, <coughs> and she, it's allergies, I'm not getting emotional, although I could. <coughs> and one of the things that she memorized and that he knew was just this one line, you're safe now. So when he would have, when he would respond, even though he's in this new American home, when he would be terrified or wake up screaming, you're safe now, you're safe now. And just side story, kid's 17 years old, absolutely great guy. So amazing to watch that redemption and see what's happened with him. But that idea of you're safe now, you belong with us, that's, that's the definition of what's happened with us. We're justified. Jesus says, they're with us. They're, th- I'm making them justified. And then the rest of our time here, we're sanctified. That's the process of becoming more and more like Christ. We're in the sanctification part of this whole narrative right now. And when we think, well, what makes us God's children? God does. It's on his authority that we're made his children. That, to me, makes me feel incredibly safe. That makes me incredibly um, at home. But when we think of how this goes down, we must remember exactly what Jesus has called us to do. Okay? He called us to follow him throughout the whole New Testament. When he's interfacing with um, a fisherman or a tax collector, or a prostitute, he, sa- he doesn't say, I, 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 want you, I want you to pray this prayer with me, and then that's it, and he walks away. David Platt's a great author. He's real big on this. He makes the point that nowhere in Scripture are we, are we called to raise our hand, and that's it, pray a prayer, write on a card, go to a camp and have an experience. Those are all great things, and those can be what lead you Those can be the the, the entry into this relationship. But so often, we think that that and that alone is good to go. So hard listening to this lady whose brother was a meth dealer and was shot by the police. And she said, but I know he's in heaven because he prayed the prayer when he was eight. Guys, this is the kind of thinking. And of course, I'm not going to correct her at that spot. She's grieving. But this is the type of thinking we have to really be careful of. This is what the scripture is saying, is do not think that 
All you have to do is say, I'm on Jesus' team, and then I live the way everybody else does, and when they die, they go down, and when I die, I go up because I prayed this prayer. You find where I'm at. I got a little too into what I was saying. So <clears throat> the idea is that we are to follow him. We're not called sons and daughters of the Most High because of something that we did one time. Instead, our relationship with Christ, our part of this family, is to continuously take up our cross daily, die to ourselves. It is a, Paul talks about us working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is an active family. This isn't a distant family. And, and, and by doing so, as being all in, well, we're co-heirs with Christ in this family. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This verse is where things start to get sticky with us because it butts right up against um, a lot of the wrong thinking that, that we hear in society and we hear within the church. This reminds me of a question that I once heard a kid ask in our Sunday school class. So now that I'm saved, can I just keep sinning? And it's actually a good question if you misunderstand the gospel. You've heard it asked, well, why not keep sinning if he keeps forgiving? And of course, no self-respecting, upstanding Christian would ever say that, but is that our philosophy? Well, my, my salvation's already secured, so I'm, I am probably going to have a little bit of fun over here, or be like the world in this way, but I know that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and I'm going to move on. And this, guys, again, this is why whenever somebody offers a sermon, all of us have to do the same thinking. The Holy Spirit is coming to all of us because I'm telling you, this is one of the scariest concepts that we can have. And in verse 4, things start to get even stickier. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness, I'm sorry, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, what I don't want to do is offer you a there, there, pat on the back. Everything's going to be okay. Let me tell you why this verse doesn't really mean what it says it means kind of answer. There's a knee-jerk reaction, whether you're leading your small group or a Bible study or just having a conversation that you want to dismiss or push through or brush aside, things like that. There's a great book called 10 Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. This is one of them. But as Christians, do we not run toward the truth? Do we not run to our Savior? We have to really be careful not to run from it, from him. Going back to the idea that we do not make God our Lord and Savior, we do not customize him to us, we don't get to pick and choose pieces that we like to build our own deity. And the fact is, as this verse tells us, if we make a practice of sinning, we don't know Jesus. So let's break that down. And think of it this way. If you're in a romantic relationship, and a lot of you are, you can be married or dating, but we use dating, and the person you're with is constantly, constantly talking bad about you, verbally abusing you, physically abusing you, stealing from you, leaving for days on end, every night calls you to remind you how much they love you. Do you believe that person? I would absolutely hope not, because only a fool would, because it's so clear that they do not. 
their actions and their professed love do not line up. Now apply that same reaction to the topic of sin. We're told by God in this passage that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So what does this mean for us? This is the portion of the sermon where I read two terms that I had to look up so I look smart like Pete. The first term is homardian. And that basically is meaning a trans... Uh, uh, what's the word? A transgression of the law. Okay, it's a breaking of God's law or his commandments. The second one is anomian, which means lawlessness. There's no standard. That's the term that is connected to when Satan rebelled and led that rebellion out of heaven. These terms are in a lot of ways synonymous. They refer to the believers, not, not with the, the believers' struggle with sin, because we know that we will struggle with sin and with temptation, because that's part of the sanctification process. What this is talking about is the habitual pursuit of sin committing the same sins over and over and not caring enough to even seek the opportunity with the Lord or with the accountability of others to break that sin, to beat that sin. Like our bad illustration, I'm sorry, I guess it was, our bad relationship illustration, chasing sin, chasing it, means that we do not know Jesus. We are not part of his family, according to this verse. Well, what about once saved, always saved? Because I hear that one a lot too. First of all, that's not anywhere in salvation or in Scripture, that specific line. But remember, this isn't talking about losing salvation. Not at all. What we're talking about is people who fool themselves into thinking that they have been saved when they really weren't. And again, since this passage is already pretty uncomfortable, we might as well just chase this feeling and go into Matthew 7, 21, which is the tail end of a, of a super uncomfortable passage in which... People are standing before the Lord. They say, Lord, Lord, have we not testified in your name? Have we not been good Christians? And he says in 721, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Can you, I mean, my stomach drops when I'm in trouble. Can you imagine what that feeling would be like? That's why we have the tough conversations this side of heaven. There will be many people who stand before the Lord and will be shocked to find out that they were tricked and they tricked themselves and that they never actually knew Christ, that they never actually accept, became part of that family. They, 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 they put it on their Facebook. They had it as their last name. They never followed Christ. If you continue sinning and sinning, if I continue sinning and sinning, if we continue this, and we act exactly as the world, then there's something horribly, terribly, tragically wrong. And that's what this text is telling us. I know it seems dark, but remember the gospel brings us back out of this here. But I remember a time when I was with my basketball team and we were all ready for this tournament. And I had assumed that everything had been taken care of. So I was taking care of my stuff. I had the, you know, all the, the, the players were there with their uniforms. They had maps emailed to the parents. They knew where to go. They get to the tournament, we're all ready, we're set, and we're not on the list. Now, nothing was going to change the fact that we weren't on that list. I couldn't be like, but look, they've got ankle braces, they've got Gatorade, we've got all these different things. The reality was we were not on that list. We, we had done all the little things except for the one necessary thing, and that was to sign up, or in this case, follow. It would appear great and easy it would, be, it would be incredibly easy for us if all that was required of Christians 
was that we simply said, I'll join God's team. And then we continued on, like I said, living the way the world does. And the only difference is, even though we're identical twins to them and how we present ourselves, how we act, what our hearts are like, at the very end, we got in the right line and we're saved. But the problem with that is, that's not a just God. We know that God is just. And the idea of getting your cake and eating it too, acting exactly as the world does, filling up on all the things that the world offers, what you're saying is, I will not pursue this opportunity. I will not be adopted. I will not, I will not follow Christ. And so, continuing on here with the text, in 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's consistent with the just God. The whole point of Jesus coming here was to make it to where sin no longer had the same power over us. We, we have the opportunity to not continue to be habitual sin junkies. And remember, like Ebenezer Scrooge, we have the opportunity to see the truth before it's too late, and that's what this is. Of course God wouldn't make it okay to sin and sin and sin, because he came to earth to destroy sin. And this is the only thing that makes sense to us. And in our heart of hearts, we know it. Nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Boom, that's our birthmark. It's as simple as that. Of course, if we make a practice of sinning, it's quite clear we're rejecting God. But there's an important distinction that we have to make. This passage isn't saying that if you sin and sin without repenting, then you lose your status as a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that you are and have always rejected God. It's like saying, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need that love. It's like little Sasha being adopted and just absolutely not wanting it. No, 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 I'm fine. I think I figured things out here with this pack of wild Russian boys. I think tomorrow's going to be different. I've got a plan to get bread. Thank you, American family, but I'm good. That's exa exactly what we're doing. But we are children of God, his sons and daughters. We are going to pursue righteousness because he is righteous. Of course we're going to. Ten, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. They'll, they'll know us by our works. They'll know us by our love. Why should we not sin? Because we love God. God's love for us is a compelling love. It compels us to respond to it. Our Father calls us to love him and to love each other. And we're known by our love. In this world of self, and this is where our weirdness comes back in, guys. In this world of self, we deny ourselves. Everyone says, entertain yourself, enjoy yourself, take care of yourself. Christianity says, die to yourself, abandon yourself. It's so different but that's what makes it so beautiful. It's completely other from us. It's outside of our natural being. 
So here's the question, and then we'll wrap it up with this. And it's a long wrap-up, so I don't mean to get your hopes up. But here's the thing. The question becomes, okay, I don't want to sin. I do want to sin. Paul says, I'm constantly doing the one thing I don't want to do. But we're saying, but we love God. And his love is going to compel us past this. Yes, there's an element to the fear of punishment, but that's not the single driving force. There is a joyful, joyous, fantastic love, and that's what compels us. So the question is, what work do we need to do? What, how, how can we show our love for God? And that question of how, how can I overcome habitual sin? is the, the, And here's basically a couple of thoughts on that. The first thing is to consider that we cannot overcome habitual sin by ourselves. We can't. The Bible describes us as being dead in our sins and transgressions. It, we're, we're KO'd down there. And as a result of Adam's fall, we're born spiritually dead. And in the state of spiritual death, we're unable and unwilling and not going to follow or obey God. And so as a natural occurrence of that, our habitual sin just flows and flows and flows. But this, again, is where sanctification comes in. First, we're justified. God calls us out of our death. He, he, we cannot resuscitate ourselves. He, he does. And then the sanctification comes in. And that's what the point of this is, guys. We're talking about how, how do, what is our role in the sanctification process. And this is where we're conformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. And now sanctification, remember, guys, is never going to be fully complete in this life which means that believers will always struggle with, with some sins. But part of the process of overcoming these habitual sins or besetting sins is recognizing the transformation that has taken place within the believer. This text doesn't want us to say, well, crud, I'm at step one. I'm still dead. No, no. This is talking about once that step one has been taken care of, what does it look like? And when you think about it, this isn't a Jesus saying, hey, follow me, I'll be down here, get here when you can. He's alongside us, helping us along the way. This is still the lion's share of our God and Savior because of how low we are, because of how absolutely messed up we are. Jesus is there with us. But it's about not dragging your feet, it's about taking those steps. Paul writes, so also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, in Christ Jesus. That's in Romans 6. And then when Paul says, consider yourselves dead in sin, he's telling us that, to remember that in coming to Christ, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. He uses the metaphor of being a slave to sin. But as part of God's family, part of our adopted quality, is now we're slaves to righteousness. It does not have the same hold on us. doesn't mean that it's not difficult to overcome, but it's not impossible the way it was. At the cross, the power of sin was broken. And in becoming Christians, we are set free from sin's mastery over us. So therefore, when a Christian sins, it is no longer out of necessity to nature, but because he has willfully submitted himself to sin's domination. To kind of break that down, what I'm saying is, is that like the little kid walking in the Walmart parking lot with mom, we have to jerk our hands free and run for a little bit. doesn't mean the father's not going to come after us, but it is no longer a thing where, well, that's just their nature. We have a new nature in Christ. So the, then the next part of the process is recognizing, like I said, our, ability, our inability to overcome habitual sin and our need for the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 7, Paul says, 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We have to adopt the attitude that Joseph did. And that is, when he found himself in a situation like with Potiphar's wife, he left so fast that it's like a cartoon. His coat was still there in her hands. He was very aware of his inability to save himself, and so he stayed out of the tractor beam. And this is where a little bit of the fun strategy comes into this. I don't know if it's fun. Maybe it's just strategy. But the reality is we have to make every effort to run from those things that tempt us to sin, including access to food when we're given to overeating, access to pornography for tempted and sexual sin. Jesus tells us to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye if they're going to cause us to sin. Boy, it sounds like he's so much more serious about it than I am. It's incredible. This means removing from our lives anything, even those things close to us, if they tempt us to sin because we love God. At the end of every sentence, it should be because we love God. And in short, we have to change the habits that lead to habitual sin. And then finally, we need to immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not only the means by which we're saved, but also the means by which we're sanctified. And that, my friends, is why we hate sin. Not because it's our nature from birth. We hate sin because we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We're part of his family, and Christians don't act that way. We love our God. We cling to him. Just because we realize we're helpless, in our world we're told that's a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing, because you are clinging to God. God, show me. God, help me. Pray for yourself. Pray for those around you. There's so many tools at our fingertips that we just ignore, and prayer is one of the biggest ones. So while you're removing those obstacles, be in continuous prayer. Jesus prayed his way through temptation for 40 days. Just three are highlighted, but it says that Satan was tempting this hungry man for 40 days, and he recited scripture, and he prayed his way through. So why do we think we can do it with a a once-a-week accountability call or a Bible study? Guys, we have got to realize we're only here for a short time, and sin is this beast that's right behind us. Keep your eyes locked on the Father. Pray yourself up. Cling to him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Father, thank you for this today. Lord, it's such a deep text, and I pray that anything that was just me would be forgotten. The only thing that would be remembered and, and, and part of our lives would be your true, pure, unconcentrated word. Lord, I pray that we would be a group of people uh, that would not run from your truth, would not try and excuse it, but would, would wrestle and tackle the tough issues, Father, because You give us this not to make us feel bad, but to make us feel your presence. You convict us, Father, for purposes so that we can become followers of Jesus Christ, so that we can continue to be followers of you, Lord. I pray as we go from here that you would uh, agitate us in the areas that we need agitated. But, Father, I pray that everyone would walk out here with just the comfort and warmth of the gospel, with our heads held high because of who we are because of who you've made us. In Jesus' name, amen. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.